Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited to be bringing you episode 10 of season 5 of the Radio Cachimbona podcast. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that is documenting all of the fierce migrant resistance happening in these Arizona borderlands. This is a leftist law and politics podcast. And on this podcast, I had the honor of interviewing Pedro Velasco, who is the director of education and advocacy at the Kino Border Initiative a nonprofit that works binationally at the Mexico border, working with deportees and folks seeking asylum in Sonora. And we discussed the state of the border under the ongoing horrific deployment of Title 42. We discussed the uncertainties that asylum seekers face under the Title 42 policy and call out the differential treatment given to U.S. citizens who have long been freely allowed to travel despite the various surges of COVID that have occurred and how Despite that fact, Title 42, ostensibly in place to prevent the spread of COVID, is what is preventing asylum seekers from being able to seek their legal right to enter the U.S. and request asylum. And we break down exactly how and why this policy, created under Trump and still perpetuated under Biden, violates international and U.S. asylum law. And this is something that I recorded in November, and unfortunately, this policy still remains in place to this day. As I said, it's something that was a Trump era policy that Biden continues to carry out regardless of how dangerous it is and how people's rights are being taken away and stripped in in really violent ways. One way that you can support the podcast is through becoming a Patreon. You get early access to episodes like these and you get exclusive access to the season five lit reviews, which are book club style chats that I have with fierce women of color. There's a lot of really great texts that we're looking at. And right now I'm dissecting Debt by David Graeber with Yesenia Medrano, friend of the podcast. If you give five to ten dollars a month, you get access to those episodes. And then there's also a category for folks who don't have a lot to give but still want to support. There's the Cachimona Apoyadora category where you get a monthly shout out on the podcast. Thank you to Araceli Rivera Cohen for being a Cachimona Apoyadora. And there's also ways that you can support non-monetarily. Uh, one great way is to leave an Apple podcast rating and review. It really helps with visibility and helping new people find the podcast and also helping it get ranked in the Apple podcast listings of top podcasts. And Spotify also recently unveiled a button that you can use to rate podcasts. So if you listen there, please rate and review there. And you can also follow at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can follow at Yvette Borja AZ on Twitter, where you can read the stuff that I write for Balls and Strikes, illegal journalism, doing critical coverage of the Supreme Court and just federal courts more broadly. So I think that is it. I hope that you all enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. Hello, Gachimbonas. Today, I am very excited to have 
Pedro Velasco on of the Kino Border Initiative to talk about Title 42, the CDC rule that was promulgated under the Department of Health and Human Services, where Border Patrol is immediately expelling people who are seeking asylum to Mexico, regardless of their country of origin. So just before we get started, I want to say thank you, Pedro, for coming on and ask how you're doing today. Thank you. No, my pleasure being here with you and your audience. And I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for asking. So just to start off, how can you explain what the effect of Title 42 has been on the ground and KBI being based in Nogales? What things are you seeing in Nogales in particular? Well, under this policy, it doesn't just mean that everybody who enters the United States is going to be immediately expelled without uh, listening to their claims or, you know, paying attention to the, the reasons they are migrating into the U.S., but also the ports of entry are not allowing anybody to like come forward and present a claim yes. like mm-hmm. under the international law a migrant is supposed to be able like a, a person fleeing violence or persecution in their home countries should be able to present their claims before the poor authorities but under title 42 everybody is being immediately sent back without even listening so this has been really devastating mm-hmm. because migrants are waiting migrants are you know they have been waiting for above a year now, there doesn't seem to be any answer. The Biden administration committed to restore asylum, but Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that August 2nd, they decided to extend the Title 42 for at least a couple of more months. And, you know, it's it goes hand to hand with the border closure that basically the Department of State and the Department of Homeland Security are kind of randomly deciding who is allowed to travel into the U.S. and who isn't. They determine who is an essential traveler and who isn't. And basically, if a person who leaves with uh, the proper documentation in the U.S. or, of course, a U.S. citizen, if if they travel abroad, you know, for vacations, going to the beach or, you know, just visiting for whatever reason, and then they decide to turn back, they cannot be denied to enter into the U.S. And they are not screened or they are not asked for a, a negative test of COVID-19 or anything right. like that. Right. Where if, if we're talking about a migrant or an asylum seeker fleeing violence, fleeing this kind of persecution, you know, uh, fearing for their lives and asking for protection, that is not considered essential. So basically, mm-hmm. it's uh, a mm-hmm. policy that completely disregards human life and dignity. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for pointing out how there's so many due process violations in the enactment of Title 42, because as you say, asylum seekers have the right to present themselves at the port of entry and seek asylum. And also, you know, people who are crossing unauthorized also have the right to seek asylum. The law allows for somebody who has entered the U.S. to apply to for asylum within a year of their arrival. And what that means is that they are entitled to present their case fully and fairly to a neutral adjudicator. And that being an immigration judge, which they're actually not neutral because most of them are former ICE prosecutors or just like DOJ prosecutors. But still, um, that's kind of the ideal situation as the as the asylum system existed prior to the enactment of Title 42, or although there have been just longstanding issues with asylum, even before Title 42, like 
remain in Mexico had largely the same effect as Title 42 and was something that Trump implemented prior to enacting Title 42. And so at this point, asylum seekers have been waiting, you know, years and years actually to be able to present their case um, because these are policies that unfortunately Biden, specifically with Title 42, has decided to extend into his administration, even though, as you said, he promised to help to restore asylum. And he he's just done the opposite. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. And I wanted to just kind of double back a bit and then have you explain what KBI is and what your role is there. Kino Border Initiative is a binational humanitarian organization that provides immediate assistance and accompaniment to migrants. Uh, specifically, we are located in Nogales, Sonora, mm-hmm. and but we are also trying to uh, push the immigration laws into a more humane and just system for everybody. I happen to be the director of education and advocacy. So mm-hmm. when we talk about this, uh, education is about changing not just people's minds, but their hearts to make sure that they fully comprehend that basically migrants, they don't simply wake up one day and decide they want to leave their hometown and everything they right. know behind uh, just uh, out just of- Just for uh, fun. Exactly. <laughs> just to so steal your job. <laughs> exactly. There are reasons why people are, are fleeing their home countries and mm-hmm. leaving behind friends, families, everything they know, uh, mm-hmm. seeking an opportunity, seeking to save their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are trying to help people understand that the issues at the border are far more complex. And, and there's no like easy solution, like just building a wall and that's the end of it. No, no. Uh, migrants need, as you're saying, like they have the right to at least be heard mm-hmm. and, and you know that to be treated with, with dignity and, be, and have access to justice. So uh, that's part of the education portion. And when we talk about advocacy, of course, it's about helping congressional offices and people who are in position of powers to make the right decisions on, on immigration. So, of course, you know, our, I guess my goal would be uh, that there was no need for a director of education and advocacy, that basically uh, there is no need for a humanitarian organization that provides aid to migrants. But that's on the long run. Unfortunately, there's a lot of need. And uh, these kind mm-hmm. of policies that are just treating migrants wrongfully and with total disregard, that's the reason why uh, a humanitarian organization such as Kino is, is needed in the borders. Yeah, and something I'd really appreciate about the Kino Border Initiative is that it does have that component of empowering individuals with knowledge. Most asylum seekers do go forward unrepresented by lawyers, even though the law is incredibly complicated. And KBI, you know, through your efforts as director of education, does promulgate really important know your rights information. And also, you know, I know that through partnerships with the Florence Project and other outside lawyers, like you've done asylum days where um, lawyers come in and kind of help folks pro se fill out their asylum applications. I participated in one of those prior to the pandemic. And I think that that's a really critical part of your work. And as you say, you know, KBI's kind of long-term goal is to you know, have a humane immigration system so that there doesn't need to be a KBI that, you know, receives deportees and helps them reintegrate so there can be just a border that works for everybody. And I guess you can uh, kind of uh, divide our services in two stages, like the immediate assistance and uh, like mm-hmm. on, the, on the long term what our goal is. But basically, when we're talking about direct assistance and accompaniment with migrants, it's not just about, well, almost everybody knows that we have a Comedor, uh, that we provide food right. uh, mm-hmm. down in Ogales, but it's more than that. Whenever 
ever somebody shows to our doors, we welcome them. We treat them with dignity. We uh, talk to them to hear their story because again, you know, the US authorities are not even paying attention to the reasons why people are fleeing their home countries or their hometowns and arriving to the border. Right. And uh, then we have, yeah. uh, with this accompaniment, we have a, a psychologist and staff, we have a social worker, we have mm -hmm. also a, a Mexican lawyer in case there are some complaints or reports that needed to mm -hmm. be done, or if they are coming from another country and they are considering the possibility of perhaps seeking protection in Mexico, that could also be an option. And there's this part of storytelling. So the stories that migrants trust us with, the, the stories that they share with us, we uh, share those stories so people are aware because you cannot think about doing advocacy and and you know i worked for several years uh, with the government so i i do understand this approach like seeing a problem and trying to come up with an easy solution to it but there's no easy solution there's not like uh, shortcuts in it you have to if, if you want to implement a long-lasting solution then you'll have to work in this case with the migrant community make them part of the process make them part of working along towards the solution so I think that it's really important to pay close attention to our migrants and uh, their needs in order to implement the response. And that's something that from time to time doesn't, well, most of the time doesn't happen because you have the congressional offices uh, far up north and they are completely disconnected with the border and the reality that's been living. And they have the decisions about policies uh, such as Title 42 or Remain in Mexico mm -hmm. and that we are now facing a uh, uh, remain in Mexico 2.0. So mm -hmm. if, if, if you're thinking about all these decisions that are taken up in Washington, D.C., and some, some of the people taking this decision haven't been in the border a day in their life. Mm -hmm. So they're mm -hmm. completely disconnected with the reality. So we make these efforts of sharing the stories, of course, with the uh, consent of the migrants we are working with. But it is, it is about storytelling. Yeah, that's super important to bring that counter narrative forth, especially because people like Ducey and other politicians who are using who use the border and migration and immigration issues for their own political opportunism are also contributing to the the overall far right narrative about how there's a border crisis, unprecedented surge of migrants at the border, and the truth is that the true crisis at the border is Title 42 and mm -hmm. um, the violations of U.S. asylum law and international law that have been going on for years now. And this provision, you know, this, this policy, Title 42, it, of course, gives the Department of Health and Human Services this uh, regulatory authority to mm -hmm. regulate or to promulgate regulations, uh, mm -hmm. like establish uh, requirements for migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, parolees, before they are admitted to the U.S., so uh -huh. it's not necessarily making them ineligible to enter the U.S. or, you know, expelling them right away, but it's about regulating for health reasons who enters the U.S. and how. So, you know, yeah, for but a then the Biden time, administration, the... I mean, in continuation with Trump, they published a rule where now in August, they said that Title 42 can continue indefinitely until the CDC director says that COVID is no longer an issue. Exactly. And, you know, that authoritarian so, move is just very, very concerning. And, yes, yes, you know, because I, 
Oh, sorry. sorry. I, was gonna say, I appreciated that earlier you brought up the part of this is defining what essential travel is and that that is where we can see how disingenuous it is that the government claims that Title 42 is held in place to prevent the spread of COVID because there's U.S. citizens, legal permanent residents who are free to travel. And we've, you know, we see people who are traveling, you know, all over who are going to countries where there aren't the same vaccination rates as there are here in the U.S. And, you know, the U.S. also as a whole it has done a terrible job of managing COVID and Ducey in particular has kind of taken every step in the playbook to mismanage COVID to the point where his latest buffoonery is limiting federal money that was supposed to be like COVID related relief money for a school district and withholding it from schools unless they abide by all of his specifications, one of which is you can't have a mask mandate in schools. And, you know, as we know, there isn't a vaccine that's safe for children under 12. And so that to do that, and then also say that schools can't require masks is is so frightening and kind of, and kind of shows it falls into that narrative of that the right has of COVID is not real. Yeah. And then also like this title 42 itself, like the border camps that it has created on the Mexican side of the border are kind of hotbeds for COVID. So can you speak to that? So, yeah, of course, like I get what you're saying. Like at the same time, you are kind of lifting restrictions as if COVID doesn't exist within your state, but you're pushing COVID to be used as an excuse to prevent migrants from coming. So I, I don't know if I, I, I'll agree, like, I don't see, like, if migrant population are in a greater danger of getting COVID, of course. The, well, are the border a- camps still, still in play or like, are people unhoused? Because I think if you're unhoused, that's like, you're particularly vulnerable to contracting COVID because it's difficult to have access to running water, soap. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, for example, to to uh, talk about this point in particular, you are not allowing migrants to present themselves and you're immediately expelling them under Title 42. But then you have uh, places like Asaldua's Bridge in Texas, in mm-hmm. near McAllen, Texas, Mission, Texas. We've been receiving migrants that are flown there on this lateral flight. So basically, the CBP decided that they have this needed to decompress, as they, they put it simply mm-hmm. uh, in words, decompress uh, Rio Grande Valley region. So they start uh, having lateral flights to El Paso, mm-hmm. Tucson, and San Diego. So right. we started receiving people who actually are completely strange to our region, that they have no context, nowhere to arrive, mm-hmm. nowhere to be. And going back to COVID-19, they tell us that they are kept under the bridge, you know, the open air, pretty much having to sleep on the dirt. We have the testimony of, of a father who took off his shirt in order to kind of protect her, uh, his daughter to sleeping directly on the ground, that mm. they were uh, beaten by hundreds of mosquitoes that were around, oh, God, that yeah. there was mm-hmm. only one of these portable bathrooms uh, per 100 individuals, but that there were thousands <laughs> of people waiting there wow. uh, and, you know, keeping together. So it, it doesn't make any sense that you are uh, deciding when you want to regulate or, or try to avoid the, the dispersion of COVID. And at the same time, you are generating the kind of conditions that are basically what the CDC describes as high risk of uh, contracting COVID. Yeah, exactly. That, that was exactly my point. And just the contradictions in their actions show that the real reason that Title 42 was put in place and has continued to be put in place is just xenophobia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the same time, you know, For a short period of time, there was this consortium process where CBP, well, perhaps after we were pushing and pushing for asylum 
seekers to be at least heard, they allow certain families or certain vulnerable cases to present themselves at the border. And one of the requirements was that then they have negative COVID tests. So, I mean, if going back to what Title 42 really is, uh, it's about this regulatory authority for deciding how to prevent the dispersion of a disease. So it doesn't necessarily have to be preventing anybody from coming in. You have the option of asking for a COVID test or you have, you know, different options, or you can help, you know, there has been efforts by the U.S. government to do some uh, vaccination across from the border towns, but there hasn't one directly focused or addressed uh, towards migrants. Title 42 is just using the pandemic as an excuse to, to keep migrants away from the U.S., Right, exactly. It's a deterrent. And it's very clear that's what the Biden administration is trying to do. I mean, Kamala literally went to Central America and said, please do not come or not. Please, she said, do not come here. It's Mm -hmm. very clear that that is the message that they're trying to send it. That is that is what their actions are. That's a total disconnection. Like it's it's not like it's not enough that you go to somebody and tell them, you know, don't come here without listening to the reasons why they're fleeing their home countries, that there's total impunity, total lack of access to justice, that they're fearing not just for their lives, but the life of their children, that the organized mm-hmm. crime, who is actually armed yeah. but, uh, with U.S. arms, with U.S. ammunitions, you know, uh, it's forcing or is trying to recruit their young children or the, mm-hmm. the fathers in the families. And, you know, yeah, children as young as 12 years old, we have families telling us that, you know, they have basically two options allowing their sons, their 12-year-old sons, to work for the organized crime Mm -hmm. or paid his way out. But, you know, families couldn't afford it. They're just about, you know, covering their essential needs so they cannot have the extra money to pay the the mafia to keep their their children from working to them. So uh, they decide to flee this violence, you know, because otherwise they'll, they are threatening to not just kill them, but also kill their children. Mm-hmm. And when they arrive to our border and they learn that the border is closed, that they are not allowed in. And basically that the U.S. government is telling them, don't come. Some of them, they have told us, you know, like, we tried to get back there, even though we knew it was dangerous, even though we, like... We right. have nowhere else to go. Right. And some, right. when they returned there, they learned that their homes have been burned down. They pretty much have no other place to go and no other place that w- will take them. So, and, and they cannot go to, an, because we've received these questions a lot of times, like, you know, why do asylum seekers just like, for example, if they're fleeing violence in the Southeast Mexico, why don't they just move uh, somewhere else, like the Northeast or Northwest of Mexico or whatever? But the situation is... who they're suggesting who moves there? Like the migrants fleeing violence, like, for example, if... From uh, Central uh, America? Or, or, yeah, from Central America or even from Southern Mexico. Like, why don't you just uh, move uh, elsewhere (laughs) in Mexico? Like, Mexico is a big country. But the thing is, like, they don't know that the the impunity, the, the lack of security in Mexico... It's everywhere. And basically, they've, they've told us, you know, like, if I were to move, for example, to Tamaulipas or here in Sonora, and I tried like to, to make a living here, as soon as they learn that I'm coming from Guerrero or Michoacán, they'll think immediately that I'm a Halcón or, or, or like a spy from the, the other uh, criminal group that is working there. And then my life is at risk there, too. Because they've learned about cases where families travel to another state in Mexico 
and they are killed because they're seen as strangers, they're seen as a threat. And so their lives cannot be safe until they arrive to a place where this kind of impunity and this lack of access to justice exists. Yeah, I mean, well, like for me, I'm not really, you know, interested in a world where, you know, we're tr- we're so closely trying to, re- you know, people in privilege are so closely trying to regulate where people who are vulnerable move. And, you know, I mean, and then even in like the asylum analysis, it, you know, which is what we're talking about right now, the immigration judges do this analysis, actually. They ask, can you relocate anywhere else in your country? Exactly. And so the people who are granted asylum are people who cannot move and who cannot go back to their country at all, anywhere, anywhere in their country. I think people who who think like that are oftentimes themselves very privileged. And why is that the metric? Particularly when we're talking about the asylum seekers, like there are specific categories of persecution, like race, nationality, religion, sexual orientation, family group is another example. There's like other various categories specifically that have been developed in the case law. One specification for the characteristics that are looked at in asylum are whether or not the reason you're being persecuted is something that you cannot change. Because it's like, if you are an indigenous person in Southern Mexico, you're going to encounter anti-indigeneity everywhere you go. And so to just say, oh, you can just move. It's like, no, actually, like the people who we're talking about here, these very particular vulnerable people who are persecuted because of things that they cannot change or that we should not ask them to change, then it's it's very callous to just casually say, oh, well, you could just move somewhere else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's like this lack of justice in Mexico, you know, the, the, the current administration there is uh, pretty much not fighting back the organized crime. So there's no justice in Mexico. There's violence in Mexico. And then you have, again, policies like Remain in Mexico, where you're uh, sending not just Mexican nationals, but people that are coming from other countries, fleeing violence in their own countries, and you're sending them to a dangerous country for them to wait there for how long, I don't know, but, you know, throughout the process. And remaining Mexico proved to be wrong. And that's why, you know, the Biden administration ended. But then, you know, uh, the courts are deciding to bring it back to life. And I'm sure it's going to be definitely an impact on the services we're providing. But And we will have to see uh, how it, it affects all the migrants that are now waiting and uh, not just so we are not just now fighting Title 42, but also uh, remaining Mexico policy. Yeah, and I am curious to see how that plays out on the ground, because the thing about Remain in Mexico and Title 42 is that the outcome is largely similar of people being stranded on the Mexican side of the border as they're awaiting their asylum dates. And even with when they were doing Remain in Mexico, they were doing these lateral flights that you mentioned earlier, which is something that I wanted to touch on, because I think it's important to note how this is not about COVID. Like if this was about containing COVID, you wouldn't be flying people laterally hours away from where they were prior and putting them all in the same plane where they had like you know where they had established some kind of community some type of place to live and then you know sending them somewhere where they're completely disoriented and don't have shelter and don't have contacts and the reason that they're doing that is not to stop covid spread but it's to disorient people and to discourage them from trying to cross the border again because they know that people are incredibly desperate and even if they deport them once people are going to try again because as we were just talking about these are people who these are asylum seekers who legitimately are being persecuted in their country and are fighting for their lives and they know that a return to their country of origin is a death sentence so they're waiting here 
you know, languishing for the opportunity to present themselves and seek asylum. And it's tragic and so horrific and cruel how the Biden mm-hmm. administration has continued this policy when and, it and when it when they ran on a platform of restoring asylum. And here in in, in Arizona, you know, uh, we, we've seen it when uh, particularly in Kino, the people that we serve that they are arriving for the first time, they come wanting to present themselves to the port of entry and request asylum. So they want to do it the right way. You know, I've also heard this question a lot, like a lot of times, why don't they come legally? But basically, as of now, there's no way for them to legally present their asylum claim. So what they're left to do after months of waiting and, you know, the desperation and the fear for their safety and their lives, because they are still not safe when they arrive to the border of Mexico. They're still fleeing violence. They're still receiving threats. They're extortions. They're, the organized crime is working there at the border. So they, they want to arrive to, to safety. And basically, that's where the same organized crime uh, they're trying to get away from. Sometimes they are offering to smuggle people across the border. And they are not aware of the dangers of, of the desert, You know the dangers of going through the hills, uh, this on no land that basically offers no shade and the temperatures in the desert during the summer and the rains that we've been having. So a lot of them are forced to these greater dangers because they couldn't present themselves to the port of entry or some are uh, jumping through the border wall and, you know, either breaking a leg or a hip or their back. And, you know, they go through all these additional dangers or they, there's a package that we've heard that they kind of like sell to migrants saying like, okay, you're tired of walking through the desert for five or six days. You can uh, walk a little less and we can offer you a ride. Like you still need to walk for a day or two, but we can offer you a ride uh, through the, the, the roads. And what they are not telling you is that, yeah, that ride is in the trunk of a car with another with the other seven individuals or so during the summer here in Arizona that's unbearable so this kind of dangers this kind of threats that migrants are put into there are direct consequence of title 42 and not allowing them to present their asylum claims and even so like if they are detained and they request either border patrol or cbp or whoever they're in custody they ask for asylum they tell them you know I cannot return uh, because I fear for my life. DHS would would simply not care and just send them back where they came from. So that's horrible. That's one of the horrors that we are seeing. Yeah, and I think it's it's just really, really, really critical to point out all of these obstacles that asylum seekers are going through. And, you know, like this is kind of really dramatizing increased under Title 42, but a lot of these larger structural things like about organized crime targeting migrants and, you know, targeting young boys, these are things and, you know, and the sexual assault that so many women face and so many queer people, non-binary people face on the route to the U.S. Largely a story that is kind of birthed by the increased border militarization of the U.S., be, like the the border has dramatically changed in the recent decades. Whereas you know, peop, like the border was at one point kind of just a free flowing place of both people and goods, and the criminalization of migration also led to um, the the creation of the border wall and interior checkpoints and surveillance cameras and drone surveillance and basically the DHS created a situation where 
migrants now can only travel through the most dangerous corridors and in restricting the border so much like this is the thing that kind of the the, the US politicians and the political elite refuse to realize is that you you can't really regulate border movement they tried to do so but all this but they haven't stopped migration from happening all that they've done is driven it underground and so created this illicit economy of coyotes of organized crime who then take advantage and exploit migrants and make it ultimately so much more dangerous for migrants to come and seek asylum or just seek a better life in the u.s Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that once we end Title 42 need to change. So I wanted to ask, what is your vision for a more humane immigration system after Title 42 ends? Because I think a lot of organizations are keep asking end Title 42, end Title 42, and we must. But also like communities need to be ready to accept migrants. And we need to have a plan for that. KBI has an important perspective on that. You are, you know, you do provide shelter for deportees and you are, you do work bi-nationally on both sides of the border. So what what is your vision for that? Yeah, so I think definitely we need an asylum process in place that you basically we're against any form of externalization of asylum. You know, there's already an external uh, process for uh, protection of uh, migrants outside of the U.S. and and it's called the the refugee status. So basically, nothing that prevents or keeps migrants from coming or, or this kind of like metering, yeah, you know, like taking a few of the time, you need to increase your capacity and you need to have uh, more asylum officers to actually be able to listen to asylum claims of the people for this credible fear hearing to happen as, as soon as possible. And, you know, to people start, stop being on this uncertainty. And in a lot of people say like, okay, yeah, but this will cost a lot of money, but you know, they are kind of with this medieval idea of safety about building a wall to protect themselves with actually like migrants oppose no threat to us. And migrants are just here to uh, make a living and, you know, better opportunities for themselves and, and their children. So I think that if that money, if those resources are destined to implement an effective asylum process for asylum seekers and, you know, of course, I'll say like, instead of providing additional money to CBP, provide it to another organization that does this oversight of, of CBP. It cannot be on within the same agency uh, to try to prevent all of these abuses towards migrants. And I, I think there are different organizations that are, will more than likely use this resource in the best way. So uh, I'll say there's no easy solution, of course, but if we want to get there, we need to start listening, not just to the NGOs that are doing the humanitarian work on the other side of the border, but we have to listen to the migrants that are coming. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's so, so important. And I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast today. Those were all the questions that I had. Was there anything that you wanted to discuss that we didn't get to touch on today? Well, I think we, we kind of went overall. Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much for the opportunity. I, I, I really appreciate uh, having a, a chance to, to express the, the things that uh, we are suffering at the border, but that migrants are suffering at the border and that we yeah. are mm -hmm. as much as trying to, to provide the much needed help. But I think if we want to come to a solution, we need to actually listen to them. This is all about treating migrants with dignity mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. listen to their stories, listen to their claims. And, and that is not happening 
right now because of Title 42. Nobody's listening to their claims. Nobody's listening to their fears. And that's something that is urgent that changes. And it's urgent that we implement a just, humane, and dignified asylum process for everybody. Yeah. And I appreciate the point that you made too about increasing the number of asylum officers who are adjudicating these claims, because I think that they're just much better positioned than immigration judges to adjudicate these claims. And that's for a lot of reasons. When someone's in immigration court, they're in a defensive stance. It's an adversarial hearing. So that means that there's a prosecutor that's, you know, an ICE lawyer that is there trying to deport you. And you theoretically have the right to a lawyer, but not one paid for by the government, you know, in the way that Mm -hmm. there's the public defender system. So a lot of times people are representing themselves against a U.S. ICE lawyer, you know, before a judge who's a former ICE prosecutor or a former DOJ prosecutor. It's just not, it's not the best place for a traumatized person, recently traumatized person to tell their story and to advocate, you know, and to just to, to, to tell their story. It's not the best way for an asylum no, officer exactly. who's been traumatized it's, to tell their story. And asylum it, officers, it's what well, you're applying affirmatively and it's not an adversarial proceeding. So it's it's much more laid back. It's in an office. Um, and I've just seen how asylum officers do their interviews. They're just I have the ones that I've seen or have been conducted in a way that's, as you say, it is getting us closer to a system that is more dignified. And yeah, it, the, the whole system that is in place, well, that was in place before Title 42, because I don't want us to get back to where we were. And the whole system there was made right. to kind of break migrants, you know, like putting them in detention and make it the process so slow that they'll have to stay in detention for months or even years. And uh, by the end of the day, they, out of this disparity, they seem to accept uh, their voluntary departure back to their home countries or, or, or elsewhere. So it's... Um, I think it is really important to have uh, alternatives to detention. You know, if, if you mm-hmm. give a person a court date, they will show up if they're not. Yeah. Not a, a research show, shows like, that. And I'll, exactly. I'll, add, I'll put the research in the show notes so that people can read it. But yeah, the this myth of, oh, we need to incarcerate people because otherwise they won't show up to their immigration court hearings are false because actually most of the time people do show up, you know, and uh, they show up without also and like the phrase alternatives to detention has now come to mean slapping someone with an ankle monitor and forcing them to do ice check-ins you know, too too frequently and that is not my vision either because that doesn't get rid of the carceral state that just brings the carceral state into our homes and our neighborhoods and mm-hmm. you know like people can really just be free and live their lives and be given a work permit and wait while they can you know fairly make their claim and adjudicate their claim so yeah so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast this was a great conversation and i hope to have you back on again thank you my pressure and and please yeah any anytime I'm, i'll be more than happy to to come back to the show thank you so much okay thank you bye-bye